Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Freddie Sayers, and this is Unheard. Two weeks ago, the philosophy professor and Unheard columnist Kathleen Stock came to the Unheard Club in London to talk about whether the gender row is a sign of bigger philosophical knots that somehow we've managed to get tied in as a society. News of protests against her Oxford Union speech tonight were just coming out and we talked about it, but little did we know then that it would become such a case study in the attempt to suppress free speech that the Prime Minister himself would directly intervene. So we thought we'd share the whole conversation with you today. Whether you agree or disagree with her, I think it's quite hard to leave with the impression that she is somehow an extremist who shouldn't be allowed in the public square. Welcome, Kathleen. Thank you, Freddie. Thanks for having me. Um, I was going to say it feels like a completely different world than 18 months ago, in that it really feels like that the gender debate has turned a corner. And it, in a way, it's one of those rare examples of a campaign that's starting to look successful. Do you feel that? Uh, yes, obviously, there's been um, ad- advances made by uh, critics of extreme radical gender identity, gender ideology. Um, and I think within certain kind of spheres, the arguments definitely won. Uh, center right um, being center right press being obviously the one of one of them. The left, pre- the press on the left is still wavering and riven and arguing amongst its arguing amongst themselves. And then I think once you move out of the UK context, it's a disaster <laughs> because mm. everyone's several years behind us, and these ideas are just arriving. That the, the radical activist ideas are just arriving, and they're being uncontested. All people are frightened to contest them or don't even understand them. I mean, half the time this gets a grip because nobody understands what the fuck mm. you're talking about. So, um, so the US, for example. Well, the US, but also um, Europe. You know, um, at the EU level, gender. This word gender is used all the time in multiply ambiguous ways in in the English language documents that are the um, common language of the EU, and it's not analysed whether they're talking about sex differences uh, or something much murkier or gender identity. Mm. And there are activists, well-funded activist groups intent on bringing self-ID across Europe and succeeding in places like Spain and Germany just most recently. So 
Um, and then there's in places like India, <laughs> where believe it or not, amongst the sort of moneyed upper classes, these are very sophisticated looking ideas that um, kind of signal your difference from the herd. So uh, I'm told that in India, it's getting a footing in, in sort of um, high upper class, upper class uh, right. uh, so, areas. So, you know, there's a lot of work to do. And I don't think we could say that the battle is won. And yet, just to allow us a little bit of a, a moment yeah, yeah. of reflection right. <laughs> here, um, it does feel like there are a lot of issues where people are campaigning and shouting all the time and trying to make a difference and, and nothing really changes. Whilst it feels at least in the UK, at least, as you say, in the, in the media. Having said that, you are doing a speech at the Oxford Union later this month mm -hmm. and already the motions to deplatform you <laughs> have started coming in. I understand... Multiple. Ted, Teddy Hall, most recent, <laughs> uh -oh. passed a motion against me last night, I was told. Right, so they're lining up to <laughs> protest still, even now, well, yeah, in 2023. Oxford, is, that's the way it was always going to go. I mean, this isn't a large number of students doing this. It's a small number of students with a, um, a strong social media presence uh, who have seized upon this as their you know, their hero's journey while they're at Oxford before they go on to management consultancy or law. <laughs> uh, <laughs> which is totally true. Um, most of them are, you know, they thems, which just means they have interesting hair. And, <laughs> and you know, they've been desperate for some villain to appear, absolutely desperate for some villain to appear to kind of legitimise all the claims to victimhood that are coming out of them. So... You're giving them purpose. Here I am. <laughs> Here I am. To give my rather moderate sort of vanilla views, <laughs> which they can present as hateful and disgusting. So our audience, I think, is going to be definitely friendlier than that, I would, I would predict. I'm not sure. Um, I said that we would, we would sort of look at this in a bit more of a philosophical context. Mm. You obviously are a, a professor of philosophy. Well, I used to be. I don't really think I am anymore, but yes, I used to be. You, you used to be a professor of philosophy. Um, and actually, what I think is not said enough and not explored enough is that this gender controversy that people keep writing about and talking about isn't just a, a, a niche policy concern that has important implications, although it is that. Mm. It's also somehow gets at quite a fundamental way of viewing the world that we seem to be coming to as a society. Is, is, is that fair? Do you think that, that we can use this issue to sort of understand quite important things about the way we are headed? Well, I think we can understand this, um, the idea that your identity is more important than anything else about you as a kind of distortion of um, a philosophical impulse that humans probably have always had. Um, and certainly since the Enlightenment, the idea of the individual becoming more and more important um, feeds into this pattern. And there's also, um, as this is well-worn territory for unheard readers, but you know, the idea of freedom being the highest good in the liberal uh, world has produced sort of through um, Chinese whispers, almost like a uh, a very distorted view that you you have to free yourself from everything, you know, or at least you could if you wanted to, and if you want to, then why not? Mm. So including your body, including all social norms that you find restrictive and so on. So I think you can definitely 
locate gender identity ideology in a trajectory coming from liberal currents that started in the 17th century um, and probably earlier. Uh, but also, on a, on a broader sense, it really is about the relationship between the mind and the world. It's just a, it's just a really weird way of looking at the relationship between the mind and the world, that you, the mind has primacy, pretty much. It's almost solipsistic you know, mm. in its... Um, because you, it's almost like you can, you can, the dominant idea seems to be that you can force other people to see you the way you want them to see you. And you, you, in a way you're not free because you are dependent on other people the way they see you, but you are free in that you can morally shame them until they capitulate and say, yes, you are a woman <laughs> or now or whatever. Um, so there is some sort of massive will to power going on here, like to try and control the universe, like control nature, control other people. Um, mm. It's it's obviously bonkers, uh, but it's not inco. You know, it's not um, totally anachronistic. I think. So we had um, a piece on on her today about a community called Therians, who are people who believe they are actually animals. Stuck in a human body. Um, well, we are animals. Well, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, right. I don't make me a Therian, but um, but that some some people. Are, I think there was one guy who identified as a coyote. Someone else identified as a bear. Um, and they had normal lives, but they they actually believed this was in some way really genuinely true about them. Um, obviously, this is not to kind of diminish the people who feel the same way about their gender, but is it? on that continuum, that it's it's this sense that, you know, whatever you believe to be true somehow must be allowed to be true, otherwise you're being yeah, you're I, a victim I, of violence by the universe. I don't know about... The, I mean, I didn't read this piece about Therians, and I find it hard to believe that they really believe that they are bears or whatever. Um, but there is a lot of role-playing going on these days, and there is a lot of sort of um, the kind of mental states and interim between belief and desire that you might want to call fantasy or something like that that strongly responds to um, desires, wishes, wants, but also is a bit like belief because you act as if it's true. And all over the place these days, particularly given the role of social media and big mass media more generally, there are people pretending to be things that they aren't and almost believing that they are. But I don't think they fully believe it because I think they're really anxious <laughs> um, about... And that's why in gender identity context, you force other people, you try and force other people to, to agree that you really are that thing. Um, so it's, it's not quite like belief because if it was just straightforward belief, I don't think you would be so dependent on other people's perceptions of you and so worried if they didn't see you the way that you wanted to be seen. Mm. Um, I guess it's, it's also this idea that, that through language, and this is something you write about in your unheard columns, um, through language we can kind of reconstruct ourselves and universe as mm. we want it to be. Um, there's a lot of that going on, isn't there? That, that you, you wrote a really... Um, interesting piece about Nicola Sturgeon, actually, uh, which is really from the sublime to the ridiculous here. But you were, you were talking about how, you know, the fundamentals in Scotland, uh -huh. which is where you actually were brought up in terms of 
what would, we would normally consider political successes and failures are not looking great. But there, Nicola Sturgeon, in her um, valedictory speech, used all this other language that sounded very different. Mm-hmm. Do you think you could you can make leaps all the way across to things like that? That, that it's almost kind of pervasive in the culture that we can use words, we can invent yeah. words to well, just make them make the world how we. We, I mean, it depends on what you mean by the we, because there's obviously some people that can't at all. Um, But Nicola Sturgeon can, and in that speech, she was talking as if people were going to be weeping in the streets. I mean, she was really consoling them that she was leaving uh, in a way that was almost, you know, it was this kind of role-playing of a much-beloved leader instead of somebody that was shuffling out the back door because she was about to be arrested. (laughs) But... But that's not, I mean, spin is, spin is nothing new. Like, people presenting themselves as they aren't for the purposes of the acquisition of power is nothing new. But I suppose um, now it's become a way of life available to other people, at least in theory, because you can, cons- you can curate a persona for yourself through the internet, most obviously. And the more that, <laughs> not to sound like a classic unheard com- columnist, but, you know, the more that society disintegrates and we become actually atomically isolated from one another and hardly ever see each other and are basically projecting ideas of the other, constantly feeling watched but never knowing who we're watched by and letting our sort of paranoid fantasies rush into that void, then the more um, detached from the processes of social recognition we'll get. So it's quite nice doing this sort of event where people are actually in the room because most of the time I just send my stuff out into the Mm. void and I've got no idea. It's nice to have you here. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but even if you you know not not it's nice to have an interaction, even if it's an interaction of, of criticism that's face to face rather than just mediated by technology. So um, do you, do you think of you know your your position and outlook in some ways as a, a defensive reality in this? I mean, it, it feels like on the gender issue, certainly, but on some of these other topics you've been talking about, you're sort of insisting that there is a... a there is real, some reality. Some sort of yes. reality. I'm convinced there's some sort of reality. Uh, I mean, so a lot of the uh, gender madness comes from a bad philosophical position that everything is constructed through language. Um, and it makes no sense internally and it makes no sense um as an as a satisfying explanation of what is um but it's looked very very attractive to uh academics not philosophers to be fair to philosophers um most philosophers would not that i know would uh, if they were to be social constructivists they would have to be very sophisticated ones that had really tried hard to address all the objections that seem obvious to it whereas um Gender studies social constructivists are just, you know, they're not philosophers, but they've taken this idea that you can construct language through words, and what a surprise, they have all the words, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and they sit writing words all day. <laughs> so it turns out that they are the masters of the universe, <laughs> you know. So it's, it's, um, it's not a surprise that they've ended up with a philosophical, a metaphysical physical position which ends up keeping them in nice jobs, <laughs> you know, in nice departments. Um, so what, which bits of reality should we sort of make a defence for? Well, then? the I bits mean... that hit us in the face, <laughs> you know, the bits that trip us up, the bits, like, 
I just think that I'm a, I'm not um, I'm a kind of empiricist. Like so, I think obviously human. There's an evolutionary story to be told about humans, which are animals. You know, we are animals, and we keep forgetting that we're animals. But we're located in the natural world, and we developed, and we developed these big brains uh, that were pretty plastic, but they were able to form concepts in response to bits of the world that were already there before we arrived. Um, now, there's some obvious cultural divergence over those concepts, but there's an awful lot of overlap in those concepts too. And then there are some concepts that are clearly not fit for purpose, and the people that have them tend to die out. <laughs> and then there's the people, there's the concepts that people have that, you know, enable them to negotiate the world in a relatively effective way. Um, so those are the ones that are probably more likely to correspond to something that actually is in the world. Um, and that's a kind of realist position, but it's not, you know, it's not um, a naive realism, I don't think. So we're basically, we're, we're, we're attaching ourselves or inventing concepts that actually aren't helping us, or they're not even... Well, some of them are and some of them aren't. I mean, so... COVID was a concept that we invented a couple of years ago that's been quite useful, I think. <laughs> you know, um, or some might say not. <laughs> but I find um, some people in this audience. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you think COVID's a conspiracy, then you have a different point of view on the nature of that concept, but it's still, in theory, a good, you know, it's a good one to focus on. Um, we're being told that the concepts of men and women should be radically reorientated, really not you know, not to fit anything in the natural world at all, and that we can just make them apply to whatever we want. And then they're going wrong, obviously, because those concepts evolved over every natural language to point to an extremely important division between two types of human for the purposes of sexual reproduction. So if we shift the words to focus on two different things altogether, we will no longer be able to track patterns of causation or social um, effects. Mm. Uh, including ones to do with inequality, which is why it's so weird that progressivism shoots itself in the foot. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. 
Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I guess insisting on that sort of dimorphic, um, sexually mm-hmm. dimorphic universe um, sounds conservative or it sounds non-progressive Does it really to, to progressives um it's crazy how does how and you know you are a lesbian you that you were launched the lesbian project in this <laughs> here room only about a week ago um how does that fit into this kind of um, sexually dimorphic well sexually world? dimorphic when i, I think say, a lot of people are confused about that yeah i mean sexual dimorphism at its very most basic, most um, uncommitted, unideologically committed version would just be there's two different kinds of body, um, systematically different, with systematically different physical capacities. And even if you just admit that, then when you're ordering a social world, that has huge, enormous consequences, like what happens to women who are about to give birth? What kind of social arrangements do you give, give them? Or sport is the obvious example, like how would you... Um, how would you arrange sport to accommodate these huge physical differences? I mean, there could be, there's some species that have much more dimorphism than we do, but we are dimorphic. Um, then there's the question of whether dimorphism extends to brains and to social behavior um, more generally. And that's a trickier question. Um, and I think probably a Yes, but that claim is constantly misunderstood as a sort of deterministic claim about every every woman and every man as opposed to a pattern across a huge population with masses of variation built in because biology always has variation built in. And we have these plastic brains. <laughs> you know, we're the kind of animal that has highly adaptable uh, cognitive function, so we can accommodate to circumstance in, in a way that many species can't. Do you think that basically being gay gives you makes you more attuned to that sexually dimorphic cosmos because you've actually had to make the decision actually I want to be with a woman even though that's not you know the, the majority position and that sort of and, and there's a lot of a lot of people who are most active on mm. this issue are actually gay so it's it's just yeah. and I think a lot of people are confused about that because it feels like being gay should be on this kind of progressive continuum towards yeah. being a kind of um, trans activist and, and yet the opposite has happened. What, how would you reflect on that? That is a good question. I mean, I think, for my, I can't speak for everybody else, but, and obviously I was married to a man before and I've had children. So I think I've seen both sides of that. Um, I just think, I think of uh, homosexuality as, as neither, I mean, I don't know, what, there's not a single gay gene anyway, put it that way. There's, there might be a genetic component, um, but I don't know. And, but that doesn't mean it's a choice. It, it's, it's, that's a false dichotomy. It, I, as far as I can see, sexuality develops in early life, as in 
childhood and teens and God knows how, but through exposure to complex environments, you end up with the sexuality you have, including what you like and what you don't like at a relatively fine-grained level. Um, and that's a natural, again, because we're animals, <laughs> you know, that's a natural process, if any is. We're social animals, so social processes aren't natural. Um, and I don't see any advantage to taking a moral position on the rightness or the wrongness of those processes. Um, but the reason people are surprised that lesbians and gays are involved is, part, is just, I think, a function of the way that activism has shoved us all together, first of all. Um, Which the Lesbian Project is partly yeah. there to unpick. Yeah, well, we were shoved together with gay men um, uh, relatively early on in gay rights activism. And, you know, we are different. Lesbians are different to gay men because we're female and mm. gay men are male. <laughs> and that has a... It, again, if you just take basic physiology, that has makes a range of differences so lesbians can get pregnant and gay men have to find a surrogate <laughs> if they want to. <laughs> Obviously, there's ethical questions around that. So even just sexual dimorphism amongst gays and lesbians has social effects. Um, but then when you push us together with uh, trans people, which is not really a sexual orientation at all, um, and is purely based on some superficial kind of gender nonconformity, sex nonconformity, or social sex nonconformity um, in some way, then it becomes a completely artificial grouping. And then if you allow that group to be, um, to be dominated by extreme radical voices who say that everything is socially constructed, including sexual orientation and bodies, then at that point, people like me want to get off. <laughs> so it's so you're it's it's not sort of ultra conservative at all because what you're you're saying is these differences are there and should be celebrated and not necessarily judged, but they should the the differences should be allowed to remain and that this it feels like talking to um, some gay people and lesbians about this issue that the the trans movement the gender ideology is is quite an existential threat to them because it's sort of removes what has was finally becoming a recognized and celebrated kind well, of... Well, I don't think there's any particular reason to celebrate. That's the thing. I, I'm, I'm a little... Maybe because I've seen the consequence of um, that kind of rhetoric around activism, you know, forced celebration <laughs> of mm. gay people. Why should heterosexual people celebrate gay people? I have no idea. <laughs> um, I don't celebrate heterosexual people. <laughs> you know, I think... So I think that the trajectory of gay rights in the mainstream has been pretty disastrous in ways that started before trans activism. Um, all this idea of representation became so important that it kind of... Um, it didn't fully recognise the, the sort of downsides to... Um, I mean, everything has a downside. Everything has a good side and a downside, and there's a strong motivation in LGBT activism never to talk about disadvantages, never to talk about impacts on other groups, always just present it as a straightforward no-brainer. Are you a bigot? Don't you want this to happen? Well then, put that rainbow lanyard on. <laughs> you know, And I just don't think that's a very strategic way to go about things. And I also think gay people if are on the, on the margins by, by numbers. They just are in society by numbers. So... There's no reason why we should dominate the national discourse. There aren't that many of us. 
The, diff the problem now is, though, that because it's become this identity group that's got a certain social cachet, we've just got too many people identifying into it who aren't really into it. You know, lots and lots of teenagers, massive amounts of teenagers, identify as bisexual. Um, nobody they wants to be actually. a heterosexual anymore. You know, nobody... <laughs> at a certain generation, it's like social death to be a heterosexual. <laughs> and, of course, because it's sexual orientation... The only outward sign that anyone else is going to get is if you sleep with somebody. Nobody asks whether you're enjoying it. So you can just live your whole life as a sort of outwardly um, uh, enthusiastic same-sex attracted person, but not really be that way. Do you think that's happening? Do you think I don't think. I think ultimately people will just think, "Oh no, I can't be asked at a certain point." But I think in the teen, <laughs> in the teenage category, why not? You know, yes, I think that's happening. I think people are sleeping with every everybody. Um, because they don't want to say, I don't want to. Or they identify as asexual, and that gets them out of the... <laughs> right. So what do you think the danger is, then? Of, I mean, the, on the specific gender question, there are the practical um, yeah. dangers that we've written a lot about and talked a lot about. But do you think there's a, a danger of this kind of general tendency to believe that you can be whatever you want? I mean, does, is that what it comes down to, that somehow there needs to be some kind of reimposition of, <laughs> you know, limits. Well, that's going to. I don't know how there has to be. Words, I mean, but... I don't know how we engineer some reimposition of limits. In the sense, I feel like the genie is out of the bottle and we're doomed. To be honest, <laughs> <laughs> um, but there's still death. I don't want to get further a downer, but you know, we are all going to die. <laughs> we're not. That's a limit. And we don't, nobody, you know, have you seen a dead body? Most people, my generation have yet to see a dead body and we've mm. completely put death away. There's, everyone's madly anxious about health and um, we're desperately trying not to recognise that limit, but it is there and age, ageing is a limit. Um, disease is a limit and we will all end up getting, getting one probably. So, I, now, that may sound like a negative <laughs> message, but I don't necessarily think it is, actually. I, don't, I think it can make you feel grounded once you actually fully face mortality in the face, uh, look mortality in the face, and then other things can seem very much more intensely meaningful. So there doesn't really need to be a campaign to reassert limits. They, are, they will reassert themselves. I know. I mean, I don't know. A lot of mess will happen in the meantime, but... I don't. I just never find a practical solution, a conservative practical solution to how we re-engineer uh, liberal subjects so to start caring about things that the market has told them not to care about anymore, has taught them not to care about anymore. You know, are you going to give up your freedom? You know, I don't think I am. So, religion is normally what people move to when that mm. is thrown out there. You were born a Catholic. You raised a Catholic. So I was raised a Catholic. You raised yeah. a Catholic. Does that still play a part in your sort of way of seeing the world? No, no only indirectly. I mean, I d definitely don't practice. Um, and I was in a my I was in a family. Well, I was a Catholic because my father converted from an atheist family, so it's not a typical Catholic family. And my mother was a Methodist, um, so there was a lot of religion about, uh, but it was not one kind. I was ecumenical. I mean, I saw all sorts of different religious arrangements. But I think it has, um, I mean, it's uh, made me realise I've got a certain sympathy for religion, for organised religion. 
uh, even though I'm not religious. And I certainly don't detest it in the way that some atheists really do. And I have no respect for, for that sort of atheism that really detests organised religion, particularly when you see the sort of disorganised religions that have rushed into the void, um, like ones we've been talking about, which are mm. clearly quasi-religious. Um, I think it'd be better if we were all CV. <laughs> so you're not... Oh, God. But that's not the solution, then. You know, no, that's not my solution. That's not the solution. <laughs> that's not my solution. We're not, we're not heralding Mandatory a new... Church of we're not England heralding and... a new religious revival, um, necessarily. You also came into contact with, through those brutal months when or even longer, when you were pretty much being hounded out of Sussex University mm. um, by these um, protesters that got increasingly nasty and eventually you had to um, resign because you didn't, it wasn't practical mm. to stay. You witnessed really firsthand the, 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 that sort of nasty edge of some of this. Mm. I just wonder what, if, that, if that has made you, what you've learned from that, that the some of these progressive ideas and sometimes people who really are convinced of their own virtue are capable of things that are really, really not nice. I think I already knew that, to be honest. I mean, I already... I wasn't one of those people that had had such an easy ride through life that I didn't know that people could be horrible to each other. And I certainly wouldn't have thought... I mean, I've worked in the university system for a long time and the university system generally is, you know, full of people who talk a good game about how wonderful they are and absolute shits. <laughs> uh, I think most people wouldn't admit that. And the more they say how wonderful they are, the more likely it is that they are, in fact, personally speaking, and to their students and to their colleagues, uh, you know, deficient in some way. But I didn't... Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I didn't about... think it would get that bad, put it that way. You know, I was still a bit surprised. And is it, do you, do you still, is it the, the adults, the, the co-faculty, people at university who you think should have done more to protect you and then you're more forgiving towards the students who were just sort of young and naive and stupid or do you actually, did, think, did that? Yeah, I am, I'm, so, I'm forgiving most of the time towards the students. Um, it's always hard to keep that in mind when, you know, this Oxford thing's coming up and I'm not feeling particularly forgiving towards them the moment but once it's in my past I will revert to my magnanimous uh, <laughs> attitude towards them because we were all young once and we all did thought ridiculous things and most of them don't know what I think they really don't know what I think they haven't read my book they've just read that I'm an awful person and and we don't like awful people so we're going to go along and tell her that she's awful um no it's, but the I just but do you think it's particularly now though I mean I'm I'm just wondering whether we can tie it back to this, this slightly sort of ungrounded. Well, yeah, they're, they're, they're unhappy. They're unhappy. I think that's the thing. It's hard to stay very cross with them, um, with some exceptions. <laughs> but it's hard to stay angry with a bunch of very anxious, neurotic, um, self-absorbed teenagers and young twenty-somethings who you know, I think are deeply unhappy, those ones in particular. I mean, 
they're going to say they're not. You know, this is the sort of thing that really annoys them. They're going to, like, march around saying, no, we're very joyful. Look, look at our joy. <laughs> There's this new thing where they have to exhibit joy at every protest, so they have to dance really angrily but joyfully, you know. <laughs> and there's conga lines that are joyful. Um, but it doesn't look very joyful to me. It really doesn't look very joyful to me. And I don't think they are. I think they're really, really anxious. And so I just don't... And that is no doubt a result of the knock-on, the downstream effects of technology and the university system, which is not really fostering, or despite all the talk that goes into it, it's not really fostering communities. Like, I was always struck by the fact that a lot of my students didn't really know that many other students. And I'd say, where are your friends? And they're like, oh, I didn't really make any, you know. Um, so they're not having these amazing experiences that an older generation might have had, formative experiences. Not all of them. Some of them are, clearly, but not all of them. So they're lonely and they're looking for friends and they're looking for purpose and meaning. And that's all fine. Yeah, I can forgive them that. It's the, it's the lecturers that I really get annoyed with. So your message to... Um, any Oxford students who are watching and looking to Well, there's no point me giving them any message whatsoever because everything I say is automatically processed as, you know, if I'm reasonable, then I'm sinister because, <laughs> you know, it's just a fig leaf for my basic evil intent. And then if I'm sort of jocular, then I'm hard-hearted. You know, there's just, they've got, there's no just no out. point. I'm not giving them a message. <laughs> they wouldn't listen. <laughs> I was going to ask about tradition, but that might you might feel that's getting. Um, I mean, what we're looking for here is, is some sort of way to go, <laughs> some some something that we can actually hold up and and start trying to reintroduce to people to make them feel less lonely, less lost, more grounded. And you know, definitely conservative types would say that that is tradition if it's not religion, and you know, they would try and go back to the good old days where people had a, a more grounded sense of where they came from and what was important in the world. Do you think of yourself as someone who supports that? I, I mean, no, I mean, I, I'm, I'm very, I'm afraid I'm a bit of a pessimist. And I, so I read the kind of doom-laden um, analyses of people like Mary Harrington and who are my, who's my friend, and, and Louise Perry. And I think, yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right. And then I read their solutions, and I'm like, oh, it's never going to work. You know? <laughs> I think, we, you know, we're here. How, how, does, how do we propose to put women in a more kind of traditional role or to incite women to um, get out of the workplace and have more babies? I mean, do... <laughs> I just don't think it's going to work. But I think, on the other hand, um, the best we can do is to stop trying to make grand-scale interventions, which we don't know the downstream effects of. We could just take people's phones away <laughs> as well in certain contexts. There's little things we could do. You know, universities could push back in little ways. They don't have to do anything big. They could just say, no laptops in this classroom. We're going to look each other in the eye or... We, they could just stand up for free speech, properly stand up for free speech, and push back against really bullying, tyrannical, narcissistic voices, because there aren't that many of them. And, and if everybody stood up to them, they'd shut up. That's, a, that's, you know, we're not any, that's not a new fact about human nature. So I think I'd be prepared to throw my weight behind small initiatives, but I always get a bit um, Hamlet-like about big ones, because we just don't know 
if we'll end up with something worse than when we started. I promised everyone philosophy. So yeah. one thing we could do is tell people what to read or suggest, you know, if, if, you, were, if you were doing a, you've been very critical about academic philosophy as, as it currently well, is. Well, yeah, and I should probably, department. I can see an academic well, philosophy in the should, audience, so I think I should probably oh, okay. correct the record. What should we be reading or teaching? I, well, I want to, I want to um, be a bit nicer about academic philosophy than I have been um, <laughs> on record, because actually the majority of academic philosophers are, are, you know, I still think great and possibly some of the best minds in the academic system. I mean, really, in philosophy, you get such a good training if it's going well in arguing, um, in subjecting yourself to strong critique and to others to critique and really thinking about very complicated things in depth. So, um, and most of them are still doing that. They're not on social media and they're not interested in participating in what they would see as totally total ephemera, like what you're saying, men who say they're women become women. I mean, they just wouldn't spend a second on that <laughs> as a, a plausible philosophical claim. But then that means, of course, that they can't take it seriously when uh, someone like me says, yeah, but this is being implemented in policy. Um, so I, I don't know. I just think um, there's loads of people. I, I really like uh, Bernard Williams. <laughs> if you could just pick a name out of a hat, and I was reading him recently. Um, Bernard Williams, uh, lots and lots of books, but I think the one I was reading was Making Sense of Humanity, if that's the right title. Um, so he's a ethicist, but he, um, he has a kind of deep psychological understanding of ethics, I think. Uh, and he... He's got some savage critiques of utilitarianism, but he's also um, very savvy about Kantian, the Kantian strain of ethics, which is all based on rights and duties and obligations. Um, he's deeply versed in the classical understanding of ethics. So he makes a distinction between ethics and morality. Morality would be the rationalist um, enlightenment version. Ethics is the classical one. And it's great. <laughs> yeah, we, we got, we've got a tip. Yeah, read some for the reading list. Um, you said you're pessimistic. You you seem quite optimistic. Um, Do I? <laughs> well, I think, um, you know, the the last year and a half feels it, well, from an outside perspective. It feels yeah, but that's like just gone, shows how, how terrible well. it was. <laughs> um, and it feels like you are at least winning an argument, and it feels. It feels like good sense on some of these things is kind of prevailing. And in no small part, thanks to people like you who are actually fighting the good fight and taking the hits for it. <laughs> Do you, uh, is my optimism just misplaced? The, the world's going to be all right after I don't think... I'm afraid not. I think... <laughs> I think... I mean, look, it's a sign of how absolutely batshit these ideas are, that it's... that. Um, that it's been relatively easy, honestly, relatively easy to correct them amongst anyone who's sensible the same, because they just look at them for two seconds and go, of course, that's not going to work. But um, there's many other things about modernity that are much less clear. And it's a sign that I got, I mean, I was never an activist. I would never have got involved in activism. I never felt that clear about anything. But this is just so obviously wrong that it's really easy to get into it and say, clearly, this is wrong. 
So I suppose if, um, if modern culture keeps throwing up these terrible mistakes, it will be easy to correct these terrible mistakes, these egregious, obviously crazy cult-like ways of thinking. We can correct those. But there's much more complicated social issues that seem to me about reproduction, for instance, a lot of them to do with women, that are very difficult to unpick because there's just no clear flaw in the thinking once you're in a liberal mindset because it's all, it is like, why shouldn't I um, have, you know, use a surrogate to produce a child for me? Why not? She's, she's up for it. I'm up for it. The baby will be happy. Why not? You know, so that sort of thing is a lot harder because there's no real fault in the thinking. There might be a fault in the attitude, but there's no real fault in the, in the logic. So I'm sorry. <laughs> Does that mean you're not a liberal? I don't know. I don't know what I am. I think I'm a sort of reluctant, depressed liberal. I think that is a really great moment to draw this to a conclusion, because although you might say that you're pessimistic, I think for all of us, it gives us reason to feel optimistic. That you know, you, you put yourself out there, which was a very brave and very unpopular thing to do, and not many people agreed with you, and you've held firm and the world is catching up with you. And it's not very often that that happens. Um, so thank you for that. Thank you for coming and talking to us today. Thank you, Kathleen Stop. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.